Hi friends, welcome to the Ian Khan Show and you're watching an Aftershock special episode. In today's episode, my guest is renowned writer and thinker Brian Alexander. Brian, welcome to the Ian. Was there something you want to say? No, it's just give a thumbs up. Okay, thumbs up. Three, two, one. Brian, welcome to the Ian Khan Show. You are on a special episode of Aftershock Contributors, and this has happened as part of your contribution to the recent book, Aftershock. And we'll talk about that in one minute. Brian Alexander, how are you? Good. Uh, it's good to be here, Ian. Thank you. Um, uh, how, I should ask you, how are you doing in this pandemic? The pandemic is, I think, testing us all. The pandemic is a, is a big graduation for all of us. I, that's how I feel. And um, I hope everybody comes out of it fine. And you know, there's, there's a huge human toll that it's taking, which is very unfortunate. But I really think this is a, it, it's, it's, it's just a graduation test for us where we are supposed to find out who we are and what we're made of and what our capabilities are. I'm doing okay for now. But uh, just trying to work, just trying to do things, connect with people online, uh, using the most of my time uh, as much as I can to create value wherever I can. That's really it. No, I can't do anything else. Where are you based? I'm in Toronto. I'm in Toronto, Canada. Very good. Very good. And Canada has been, uh, as far as I can tell, being very smart about this so far. Yeah, we're doing okay so far. Let's see how the next uh, few weeks are. Yeah. And, um, how about yourself? I'm in the uh, Washington DC area, uh, so I'm hunkered down. Uh, I haven't left the house for about three weeks and I've just been uh, working nonstop. Uh, I work in the future of higher education, so I've been doing research, I've been hosting video conferences up to five a week, um, teaching a class online and uh, trying to pivot my business. Uh, to, you know, a lot of my business is based on face-to-face -face events like keynotes and workshops, so I've been translating them all uh, online. So yeah, and so far healthy. Absolutely. Amazing. I love it. And I'm sure we'll all come out of this, uh, you know, hopefully uh, in, a, in a good way. I want to talk about Aftershock. So Toffler wrote Aftershock about 50 years ago. It's been 50 years. Um, Toffler wrote his book and uh, it, it one fine day, it sat on a shelf that you had access to when, as a kid and you were traveling with your family. Tell, tell me about your first experiences with, with, uh, with Toffler's work. Uh, I was an elementary school boy. Um, and I was on a family trip, which was uh, like it is for most children, very boring. Uh, and uh, I, I desperately wanted to read something uh, that would engage my mind. At the time, I was a science fiction fan. I you know, loved Star Trek, but also read a lot of science fiction. And uh, I was stuck in a giant office or a study, uh, which had tons and tons of books. So I was pouring through the books, trying to figure out what would be interesting. The future shot caught my eye. And, uh, you know, for a, a fifth or sixth grader, it's, it's a bit much but I was able to poke into it and get a lot of the ideas. A key thing that really surprised me was this idea that the future could be shocking, that people would have a hard time dealing with change because I was very young, but also I was reading lots of science fiction. So for me, that was the kind of background hum of the universe. Uh, so this gave me a little superiority, uh, but also started having me think about the future as something that's, you know, for lack of a better word, problematic. That's something that people could contest and argue with, that it, it wasn't inevitable, uh, and that uh, a lot of changes were things that uh, were complicated, which is quite, a, quite an understanding to get at that young an age. So you, you now uh, work in uh, the future of higher education or education, Correct. let's say, a huge field. Uh, so much is predicted to happen with education when it comes to 
uh, being it being experiential. There's many people who are experimenting with uh, virtual reality. Doctors are conducting surgery online and, 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 and learning different things. So there's all of these things that are happening with education in general. Help us understand what the next five to 10, well, I would say the next five to 25 years uh, would look like when it comes to education. Talk about experiences, talk about what education maybe really means uh, and uh, where are we headed? I think globally, we have, for the past generation, had this impetus to give more and more people more and more post-secondary experience. Uh, people have, and by people, I mean governments, foundations, companies, and just general civic society has decided that if you're in Ontario, you've got to have more university experience. If you're in Mozambique, if you're in um, uh, Mumbai, you have to have college and university experience, the more the better. And at the same time, we've also decided that experience has to be of higher quality. So there've been every country, every nation, every region has gone through different versions of this, trying to improve pedagogy. Uh, and sometimes that means sending students abroad. So if you look at, for example, India and China, uh, they are massive exporters of undergraduate and graduate students. Uh, if you look at Canada, uh, you guys are wonderful importers of uh, international students. And per capita, I believe you teach more international students than anyone. But there's all kinds of different drives. Uh, Germany, about 20 years ago, spent several billion euros just to improve its university system. Uh, if you look at uh, India, they're, they're trying something new. I'm trying to grab my hands around it right now, but they're really trying to do a kind of public-private partnership to uh, improve K through 12 as well as higher education. In the United States, this is a, a field of it that's really contested. People have all kinds of arguments about should we increase testing, should we increase data analytics, should we increase some kind of federal oversight, or should we push for certain new fields? Uh, so I, I think over the next 20 years, I think we'll see this, the quality drive continue. And so there'll be support for things like teaching with VR, uh, using more artificial intelligence, lots of technologies that we can deploy as well as just uh, various human, human non-technologically related practices, everything from, as you said, experiential learning, but also active learning. Now the quantity though, the quantity I'm not sure about. Um, I mean, every developed nation goes through this, Canada certainly went through this, where once you pass a certain point in modernity, you have fewer and fewer children. Uh, so you, know, you look at birth rates around the world, uh, demographers say you need about 2.1 children uh, per woman in order to reproduce a given level of population. And historically, that number is usually something like 10, 12, you know, women have historically had lots of children. Uh, and once you go through modernity, that number plummets. Uh, so for example, South Korea, the number is about 0 0.9. Uh, big chunks of Europe, the number is in the 1.5 and up. Um, and it looks like all of our fears, I, I don't know if you had this when, um, when you were growing up, Ian, but all the fears of overpopulation now turn out to be a 20th century thing. Uh, we, we may be turning a curve and reaching a point of peak higher, peak human population yeah. after which this goes down. Why does this matter? Well, this changes the whole world, obviously. But a key thing for higher education is our model of teaching 18 to 22 year olds has to change. So to do, I mean, in Canada, for example, you have lots of colleges which teach lots of adults of all ages. Uh, so we'll see more and more of that. But also there's a disruption in business models. Uh, a university or a college that teaches 18 year olds is now gonna be competing for an ever shrinking pool. And the pandemic, uh, we haven't talked about that yet, uh, will accelerate that. Uh, but you know, think about teaching for a whole lifetime. 
I mean, it's not just to have a university open in downtown um, Windsor, which can be available for all comers. I mean, that, that takes some doing for some institutions. But also think about what lifelong learning is. Right. So what did, what did you study when you were in college or when you were in university? So I uh, studied uh, engineering. I'm, uh, I studied instrumentation technology engineering, and uh, that was what, what, what I was uh, all about. Um, but I went after, subsequently, I went into more into, uh, let's say, IT. And I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I did my mass Microsoft certified systems engineer certification. Mm -hmm. I did my IBM. I did my Cisco. So I kind of went through that route. Um, more on software technology, uh, technology side. So yeah, that's been, that's been kind of my, uh, my forte, uh, went, ended up into project management, become a, became a, a PMP. So it was a few different things. Um, but no, it's been, uh, it's been very different going from a very classroom traditional model of education when I was in school mm -hmm. to now when I'm teaching online and I'm designing curriculum for an online class and it's a it's kind of much the norm right now so especially with now as well we've seen COVID-19 it has changed the world it has put many people into a new environment where they were not comfortable before but now they don't have a choice what are your thoughts of that maybe technology um I don't know if Offler could ever predict this but he, he talked about technology increasing rapidly and the pace of technology increasing but not the fact that we would be thrust into using technology. Well, let me, let me, let me take these in, in, in steps. I mean, first of all, your own experience is fascinating, um, going from instrumentation to IT to project management. Uh, and, and think about what this means, though, for a university. Um, you know, if we have a very young Ian, he's 18, goes in and we teach him engineering, uh, all the principles of how to do fine instrumentation and stoichiometry, that's all great, okay. Um, but then maybe Ian comes back when he's 35, uh, and he uh, is thinking about project management and wants to get certified in that. Can that same university then teach that? Maybe Ian comes back when he's 55 um, and he really wants to look into uh, cell biology. And can you have this kind of cycle of cycling in and out of the same institution? Or do you go someplace else? Do you go to McGill, for example, uh, and then you know go to the University of Toronto for something else? Um, so I mean, that's a, that's a different model of, of education. So. To, to your point about the, about the pandemic, uh, one of the things is I don't recall Toffler writing about pandemics uh, in either Future Shock or Third Wave. Uh, now, the futures field has been working on pandemics for decades. Uh, so when American President Trump says, no one can have seen this coming, that's completely wrong. Uh, people have been modeling this and writing about this. My new book, for example, uh, Academia Next, uh, on page 23, I say, well, Let's imagine a pandemic striking higher education. How would that change things? Yeah. Some of my readers now are a bit freaked out by this page, um, understandably. Uh, so we're, we've been thinking about this for some time. And in terms of education, it's, it's meant a massive, fast migration of digitality into online uh, experience. And I, I, think, I think for Toffler, you know, partly some of the lessons of future shock are, of course, to look at the sociology of this, how this is shocking, how this is disturbing, how we resist it but also how people who embrace it start changing their culture and how those cultural modes begin to shift. So you can think about people who are very comfortable in Zoom, like you and I are right now, versus people who are not, as well as people who are using all kinds of other technology, be it WhatsApp or VR. But I, I think also what's hinted at in Future Shock and what gets really developed in third wave is this idea of uh, 
post-industrial economy. And so what we're doing is we're shutting down the industrial economy, what's left of it um, in North America. Um, and we're pushing into this kind of post-industrial experience. I mean, what you do uh, working with you know, IT and working project management and now with, uh, with podcasting is a great example of that. This is kind of symbolic manipulation. Uh, what I do as a futurist is another example of that. Uh, and so in, in a sense, we've kind of hit fast forward on the succession of waves in Toffer's sense. I, I think as well uh, for education, this is very threatening um, because uh, there's the possibility that students will uh, not want to pay full freight uh, for the experience. Uh, there was a poll of MBA students, for example, who said that uh, these are incoming MBA students who'd be starting classes this fall. And they said about 42% of them said, yeah, I'd want a discount if I'm teaching, if I'm taking this class entirely online. Um, and already campuses have had to give different tuition breaks and, and I'm sorry, uh, room and board breaks um, and fee breaks to students who, you know, are resident in a residential campus when they're not residential, they shouldn't have to pay for that. So it may be that there's a big financial hit, uh, which is going to push higher education. But on top of this, you know, and, and this is going to happen as well to every uh, province in Canada, uh, as the recession advances, uh, and that really hits what a local government um, can receive in terms of revenue, the local government, be it a city or in your case, a province in the U.S., a state, uh, also have to spend more on public health. Yeah. Everything from, you know, buying PPE to extra cleaning to perhaps extra patrols and, you know, maybe setting up everything from morgues to field hospital. I mean, all of that stuff, which means that higher education is going to get cut. It's going to lose a lot of support. Uh, and how people respond to that, that's what we have to plan out in higher ed. Uh, the American model is uh, financialization. Student, we increase tuition and students take out more loans. Uh, very few other countries have done this. Britain is just starting to look into it, um, but it's uh, that's one path. Uh, another is for students to put off higher education and say, forget, I, I can't do this right now. It's not worth the cost, and uh, um, I'd rather stay home and care for my family, some yeah. of whom will have COVID-19. Yeah. Uh, so it may be that we see not just revenue, but also enrollment plummet in higher education, which is going to spur both all, all kinds of reactions, including uh, hunkering down, and uh, getting defensive, as well as reaching out and trying new stuff. Yeah. Do you think, uh, Brian, do you think in the future there would be a need for us to have um, more wider knowledge than more depth? Or how, how do you see that changing because of how the next generation is looking at the world, how they're perceiving education? Uh, I'll give you an example. Look at the, uh, if you look at uh, the accounting industry, as an example, not many mm -hmm. people are, they're facing a huge talent challenge. Basically, mm -hmm. accounting mm -hmm. is suffering because people don't want to spend 160 hours per week sitting in the office or doing things like they, they used to do back in the day. So many lesser and lesser, lesser people are opting for that. Big, big challenge for eight, uh, one specific industry. How do you think people's value system or people's needs or students' needs in the, the students of the future how does it change how education should be? Should it be more deep? Should it be more wide? Well, if we're thinking of, are, are you thinking in terms of the workforce that they'll be encountering? Yes. Okay. Um, I think there are a lot of needs. Uh, and one of them is, and this goes right back to Toffler 101. He says that, you know, we have to uh, learn how to unlearn uh, and relearn uh, new things because, uh, the environment changes rapidly. So one of the things that I think higher education has to do well is teach people how to learn. 
which sounds kind of either awkward or <clears throat> obvious, but um, it's actually tricky. Uh, you know, for example, to teach people metacognitive skills. Uh, how does Ian learn well? You know, by what means um, do you learn well through repetition? Uh, how do you respond to simulations? Um, you know, how much information can you take in at a given time? Um, you know, what does writing do for your learning? Um, that kind of thing. Uh, you know, students have to learn how to do this because they're not always going to be at the university. They're going to take off like you did and you're going to head out and get certificates in something or pursue another path. Uh, so that's one key thing. The second is, I mean, this is kind of off the radar now because of COVID-19, but is to think about automation uh, and the huge impact automation. By that, I mean everything from uh, robotics to um, artificial intelligence and to, you know, software that isn't quite as mighty as artificial intelligence, but does a lot of the same functions like uh, facial recognition, pattern recognition. Uh, and then we have, so we have to think hard about uh, what does it mean to work in that field? So for example, uh, you are making a podcast. To what extent will you be able to rely on automation? Uh, you know, can you uh, run software that will do uh, sound correction? Uh, can, you know, how much can you uh, automate in terms of getting guests and scheduling them? Uh, what about being able to run software that can scan the world of podcasts and give you a sense of the marketplace? Uh, to what extent does that become part of the podcaster's job? Uh, and same thing with project management uh, or my field, futures. I mean, we already have projects like Shaping Tomorrow, which automate gathering information and horizon scanning. There's a... Uh, uh, a product I was looking at that does uh, data analysis and it actually produces prose. I mean, it produces sentences and paragraphs as a result. Um, I, I'm, I'm not saying the question of will we lose jobs. I think right now in this stage, we're thinking about what does it mean to work with automation? Yep. And higher education has to teach us how to do that well. Yep. Let me let me read. I wanted to read this from uh, from your uh, your uh, writing in in Aftershock. Please. So. It's, it's a quote, it says, I was powered by Toffler pushing campuses to consider the tech, just starting to peer over the horizon mobile devices, augmented reality, games for learning, but I hit a wall. And you hit, tell us about that hitting a wall. Are, are we still hitting a wall when we talk about technology and higher ed and learning? Yeah, yeah, we, we really are. And the wall is now, of course, a little more complicated, more like Tetris. Um, the wall I was referring to is that in education, a lot of people, will resist talking or thinking about technology. And one of the areas of resistance is outsourcing. Uh, they say that this is something which I, as a professor, I as a librarian, I as a staff member, I don't have to think about because other people are paid to think about that. Much like, you know, if you're a professor of engineering, you don't have to worry about uh, French pedagogy, French language pedagogy, because you're not teaching it. That's what you pay, you know, Denise to do, that kind of thing. Uh, so on campuses, you have uh, big IT departments, and that's their job. So that was one part of the wall. Uh, a second brick is uh, simply the resistance. And the resistance of technology, I don't mean in the terms of thoughtful critique. Uh, I, I mean in the sense of I don't like technology. It, so people who will call themselves Luddites, for example, um, or people who will speak about technology in blanket senses, but then be hypocritical in how they actually engage with it. For example, someone who will say, I can't stand technology. I think we depend too much on technology. And if you look at them, they're wearing glasses. Uh, they're taking some kind of advanced pharmaceutical. They may have traveled to you in a car or an aircraft. And you ask them, are those technology? And they're like, yes. Yeah. So, well, which parts are, can you do without? And it gets a little tricky. It turns out what they mean by technology is some particular sliver that gets their attention, like, say, Google Glass. Uh, the great 
British science fiction writer Douglas Adams once said, quote, technology, unquote, means anything invented after you are 30. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and so I, I try to, you know, it, it was difficult to work with uh, folks like that. But if I would talk about the future of education, then both of those audiences, uh, the wall would crumble because they would all be interested. The people who call themselves Luddites are usually concerned about the future of technology in general. And they're happy to talk about all kinds of parts of it from demographics, as you and I were just talking about, to economics, to curriculum, to pedagogy. And the people who outsource the thinking about technology, now they can come back in. I, I think futures thinking is one of the great interdisciplinary um, initiatives that humans have ever come up with. I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. I know we're running out of time, but I want to take maybe the last couple of minutes and get your insights on what what direction would you, you would you suggest and advise people who are watching this you know this series mm-hmm. uh, who are in the field of future education? What are maybe one, two, or three steps that you would ask them to take towards the future so that you know, the outcomes for the higher ed are, are, are different and they're better. Like literally mm-hmm. uh, a university dean, a, a principal, whoever is leading charge in a university or in a higher education setting, what should they do? First of all, they want to, uh, they should participate in conversations about this stuff. And that sounds cheesy and I don't mean it to be. What I mean is to engage with discussion, in discussion with people around the world, but especially outside of your normal um, areas. So to talk outside of your discipline, uh, to talk with people in other campuses, uh, to talk with people in other nations, and as well as other fields, just to try to get a sense of where they see education going. Uh, A second part of that, and related to it, is to build future and capacity at your own institution. So this could take many forms. This could be, say, uh, an informal study group that meets over drinks every Friday night uh, to do, or every you know, last Friday of every month to look at what's happening in higher education and try and look forward, maybe have a video or a reading to chew on and think about. Uh, it, in some campuses, it takes the form of, of, of staff who actually do regular research, uh, such as horizon scanning or signal scanning to try to figure these things out. They may produce scenarios and bash them around and see what they're like. Um, this can then feed into strategic planning in all kinds of ways. And, and the third is just this mental attitude I think of it sometimes as the science fiction attitude, the idea that the future is different than the present. There are all kinds of similarities, all kinds of continuities, but to imagine that Thursday is a different from Wednesday and that 2030 will be a different planet than 2020. Um, science fiction, watching science fiction movies, reading science fiction books is a good way to get into that mindset. It may also be just talking with little kids, uh, you know, elementary school age, where we began this podcast. Maybe that's a really good way because they are in a very, very different world. And I think we need to have that mindset. And once you're in that mindset, then you can really cut loose and learn a lot. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So participate in discussions, build capacity, uh, and change your mental attitude because that's where the future is created. That's where uh, we are headed. I am so thankful uh, for you to, to you to, for, for jumping on, on, on this podcast, uh, Brian, and sharing your insights. Uh, I also want to point people to Aftershock, wherever they are, uh, check, check it out and, and see what we're doing with Aftershock. Tons of insights in there. But tell us also, um, as we part, where can people find more about you and where can they find your book? Well, first of all, to find out more about me, I would go to futureofeducation.us. And there you will find links to my blog, 
to my monthly trends analysis report, uh, to our book club, and also to our weekly video conference discussion, the Future Trends Forum. Uh, you can also find me on Twitter. Uh, I'm Brian Alexander, B-R-Y-A-N-A-L-E-X-A-N-D-E-R. Uh, and you can find my book, Academia Next, either on Amazon or Johns Hopkins University Press. And Ian, thank you very much. These are great questions. It's a real pleasure to be on the program with you. You're very welcome. It's my pleasure to have you and honored to be a co-contributor with you with Aftershock and, um, and all the other people who've contributed. Thank you so much, Brian. Here, here. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. Hey friend, this is Ian Khan. If you liked what you saw on my video, then please subscribe to my YouTube channel and be inspired every single day with innovative content that keeps you fresh, updated, and ready for the future. For more information, also visit my website at iankhan.com. 